Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we begin a series entitled, He Made Me Human. What you're about to hear will cause you to think biblically and may provide some answer to some difficult questions. So let's turn in our Bibles to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, with the very first message, In the Beginning. Every book has a starting point. Some of you will remember the old Charlie Brown cartoon series in which Charlie Brown's dog Snoopy was trying to write a book. And he spent forever trying, but he could never get beyond that first line. His book started with a phrase, it was a dark and stormy night. Of course, that's all he ever wrote, but that was a very good first line. Books are about more than the first line, but that first line is very important. When Charles Dickens wrote his book, The Tale of Two Cities, he started with this line. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Or how about Jane Austen's first lines in Pride and Prejudice? It is a truth universally acknowledged, she wrote, that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Wow! Famous, unforgettable words written in famous, unforgettable books. The Bible also has a memorable first sentence. It's more gripping than Snoopy or Dickens or Austen could come up with. It simply says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those words look so simple and so easy, so straightforward. But those words open up the grandest story ever told. And yet, behind those simple words, we discover something so complex that we have to pause before we read any further, before we try to digest the next 1,000 pages and wonder what's meant by those amazing words. You see, here's the question. The beginning of what? It's not the beginning of everything. The same man who wrote those first lines in the Bible also wrote this line from Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, I mention this because of the silly things that sometimes get said. You know, the atheist Richard Dawkins, when confronted with a simple and logical reality that something cannot come from nothing, has argued that God can't be the answer either because, after all, he says, where did God come from? You know, when I read that, I had to shake my head in disbelief. It's as if Dawkins has decided that since he can't win the argument over origins, he's decided to argue that the gods and goddesses of the Roman and Greek pantheon are not the ultimate explanation for the existence of something out of nothing. And of course, we'd have to agree, we don't believe in the Roman gods either. According to the Bible, God is the uncreated creator. He is the God who exists by necessity. There's never been a time when he did not exist. He is the only constant thing. From eternity past to eternity future, his existence is what we would call non-derived life. His life, his being, his essence does not derive its existence from any factor at all, from any set of explanations or pre-existent reality, for he is life in and of himself. There has never been a moment when he did not exist. There never will be a future moment when he will not exist. Indeed, if there is one thing that is impossible in God, it is this. It is impossible that God could ever not have existed or cease to exist in the future. And so whatever beginning Genesis is talking about, it's not the beginning of God. And before the beginning spoken of in Genesis 1.1, eternal ages had already rolled by. 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had enjoyed a relationship of joy and utter fulfillment in an unending, eternal rhapsody of delight. So much of what could be said before Genesis 1-1 is completely hidden from our sight. And eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, all that is in the eternal existence of that one solitary God. Ah, okay. Then perhaps Genesis 1-1 speaks about the beginning of the first thing outside of God. Well, perhaps, but probably not. Job 38 verses 4 to 7 is a passage in which God questions Job's arrogance. God says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Can you imagine the scene? If you don't know what the angels are, let's let the Bible explain that. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits? You know, spirits are different than the stuff that makes up our world. Spirits are non-material. So at one point in time, God spoke, and something that had not occurred in all the ceaseless ages of eternity exploded into being, the creation of matter. It was so astounding, so magnificent that all of the angels who were already there shouted. It must have been an involuntary shout. It was a shout of inexpressible joy at the creation of indescribable beauty. Ah, but that means there were angels and other beings besides God watching this beginning. Truly, it seems that God had created beings before the words of Genesis 1 verse 1. So I ask again, the beginning of what? Someone will say it's the beginning of matter, the beginning of the universe. It's the beginning also of this world, the earth. Well, that's true because the words are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So clearly, it's the beginning of a physical, material universe. And even while that's entirely true, I'll now make a point that will seem rather obvious, but will become increasingly important as we go through this series on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 verse 1 is the beginning of our story. Even while the Bible mentions the sun and the moon and the stars and and the cosmos, this is only the background or the stage upon which this story will be written. This is the beginning of the story of God's creation of and dealings with the human race. It's the beginning of the story of the creation of our home, the earth, a place where we can live. And thus, this is the beginning of us humanity. That's why Genesis 1 to 11 ought to be examined by everyone, regardless of their religious convictions. Why is that? It's because every single human being who has ever lived, every single human being who is alive today, and everyone who will be born in the future has an anchor in this story, in these words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And there is more to it than that. These words set the stage for our most profound questions about what life is all about. We will deal with this more extensively tomorrow, but now let's observe that these words are foundational to understanding and wisdom. These words set us on a course that will determine our spiritual future. So before we dive right in, we need to slow down so we are sure of what it is that we are actually reading. So let me address five questions that are frequently asked and variously answered. The first, am I reading real history here? Am I supposed to believe that this happened in the same way as the history of the Second World War, for example? And the second question, is this account supposed to be a scientific account? 
The third, is it possible to understand this passage as symbolic and figurative rather than literal? Fourth, does Genesis teach us that the world is only 6,000 years old? And fifth, what about evolution? Does Genesis contradict the theory of evolution? So as you can see from these questions, the study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis can be quite contentious. One hardly begins reading the Bible, and one already needs to lay a groundwork for understanding. So let me begin by setting forth what I consider five non-negotiables when studying these 11 chapters. Try to follow me. First, the book of Genesis teaches us that God created the world and is distinct from it. According to John 1 verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or without him and his act of creation, not one thing came into being. Therefore, the God who created is fundamentally different from the creation. Over and over again, in Isaiah 40 and beyond, God announces, To whom will you liken God? Answer, to nothing. God is different from the created order. And so, we're not talking about the gods of the rivers and trees and moon and sun. We're talking about an eternal being who is the first cause behind the existence of the trees and the rivers and the moon and the sun. God created all things and is distinct from it. That's the first non-negotiable. Second, God is directly involved in the creation. It's no good to talk about a God who created the world in its infancy and then stands back allowing the principles of nature or of evolutionary random chance to simply work out everything in the way that they have. You know, that view of God has historically been called deism. And Hebrews 1 verse 3 speaks of God sustaining all things. That is, God not only causes all things to be, all things exist because God sustains or upholds them at each moment. The God of the Bible is hardly the deity who is far off. He is actively involved in the creation at all moments, even ultimately entering into the creation itself. And so the idea of random and chance is completely alien to Genesis 1 where God speaks to nature and actively orders its development. God is meticulously involved in the creation. And when we come back, we're going to look at the last three things that are also non-negotiables if we are to understand Genesis 1 correctly. Well, in today's introduction, we're beginning to tackle the significance of these opening words of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Where we stand on that statement determines how we perceive the world around us. Genesis tends to be a book at the center of many debates throughout history and today, but we would do well to remember the non-negotiables about creation that provide the solid foundation for all believers. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will help us understand how we can be confident in what Genesis claims about the beginning of the world. What makes a family? Family is a bond of body, heart, mind, and soul. And one way to nurture spiritual growth with our families is to share in a time of devotion. Homes are helped by a time and place to talk about the things of God. Family devotions may seem daunting, but help is on the way. This month, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will release a new family devotional, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents looking to provide spiritual leadership in their homes and for their families. 
Back to the Bible Canada believes these times of sharing together are critical for the spiritual growth of the family. So visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 to request four minutes for frazzled families. And we'll send you and your family this helpful tool for free. We have noticed two non-negotiable facts if we are to understand Genesis 1. First, that we are speaking about the uncreated creator, and second, we're speaking about a God actively involved in the creation. A third non-negotiable is that God created ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. When God speaks the creation into existence, he creates without previously existing materials. He simply speaks and matter comes to be. A fourth very important non-negotiable is that the world which once existed was far superior to the one that presently exists. The world that once existed fell from grace. It was corrupted. Therefore, the evolutionary story of the ascent of man simply does not match the biblical account no matter how hard we try. The Bible moves us from a time of a sinless paradise to a world of sin and death where nothing now works exactly like it was intended. And fifth, according to Romans 5.12, sin entered the world through one man. Therefore, the idea that Adam is only a fictional character in a symbolic story is directly contradicted by the New Testament. The account of Jesus, who is called the second Adam, who in his death takes away the curse brought upon the world by Adam's sin, makes no sense at all unless we read the first 11 chapters of Genesis as real historical events and not mere symbolism. So to the hearer, Wondering how we will interpret this controversial material, I will deal with this literature in the way in which it is presented in the text and as it has been interpreted by the people of God throughout the ages as an account of real, historical, literal events that actually occurred in real space-time history. But that still leaves open a number of questions. Is this a scientific accounting of events? And the answer is, I think, no we will see that this account does not contradict the science of evidence or observation, but the account does not intend to tell us the physical laws that govern the creation. I mean, think of it this way. What if I were to ask you why water boils? What if you answered by telling me that when water is heated, the kinetic energy of the atoms in the water make them move faster and then so forth? But what if I said, no, no, water boils when I plug the kettle in and make some tea? You see, both answers would be right, but they would be addressing the same subject matter from a different perspective. See, all that science, when it is real science, tells us is what are the physical principles that cause certain things to act as they do. Science is not a discipline that has the tools to answer every question. I also think that what most people are struggling with when they come to Genesis is not science per se, but really the theory of evolution. There are many who believe that evolution has disproved the Bible. And more than that, some of us have confused the age of the earth with the theory of evolution. It's often a surprise to many to discover that the age of the universe and the age of the earth and the question of evolutionary theory are in fact two very different questions, and we do well not to confuse these two questions. So let's talk first about the theory of evolution. Dr. David Berlinski is a Jewish agnostic, that is, someone who believes that it is not possible to know if there's a God or not. 
He holds a postdoctorate in mathematics and molecular biology from Columbia University. He's a scientist, he's an author, a lecturer, and a debater. In a debate regarding intelligent design, listen to what he said. He said, the Darwin theory of evolution is the last of the great 19th century mystery religion following Freudianism and Marxism into the nether regions. And I'm quite sure that Freud, Marx, and Darwin are commiserating one with the other in the dark dungeon where discarded gods gather. The problem facing us at the beginning of the 21st century with a magnificent body of theoretical accomplishments that when it comes to the large body of global issues that Darwin's theory is intended to address, random selection is known to be completely inadequate, especially when it comes to the overwhelming complexities of living forms, end quote. See, Dr. Berlinski goes on to point out that major mathematicians simply discount it the fact that we cannot set up a computer schema to actually show the mechanism whereby it works. He goes on to say that workable mechanisms for evolutionary biology are missing. He says we cannot point out the exact number of changes needed to move from one species to another, neither the process whereby they change. He suggests the Darwinian theory puts scientists into a kind of straitjacket, that does not allow them the necessary flexibility to consider the emergence of various theories and continues to ignore the discovery of data and binds the discussion of origins, he says, in only one direction. He suggests that because of the limitations of evolutionary thinking, it is unable to handle DNA evidence in its theory of origins. And so, says Dr. Berlinski, the time has come to admit it is no longer a workable model. Again, this is said by an agnostic. Now, I mention all of this because for too long now, we have not been able to honestly deal with the text of Genesis without feeling the need to apologize for the non-scientific nature of the book. But here's the question. Can we not have a view that God directed the evolutionary process and even intervened at key moments? As many of you know, this is what is called theistic evolution. As one Christian author recently said, we need a view in which, as humans slowly evolved, there came a point in time when God put his spirit into a human pair that had evolved to a place where they could now be called in the image of God. Well, several things are important here. First, let's be clear about what evolution is. What do we mean when we say the word evolution? And here it's very important to make a distinction between what is called microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution, which I am sure no one doubts, simply refers to small-scale changes within a species allowing it to adapt to its environment. For example, in Hawaii, there's a unique butterfly found there only whose mouth is designed to eat bananas. But bananas have only existed in Hawaii for a little over 1,000 years, so clearly this species of butterflies has adapted to their environment. No one doubts that. But macroevolution refers to large-scale changes resulting in the formation of entirely new species. This refers to a universal common descent, the idea that all organisms descend from a common ancestry solely through unguided, purposeless, material processes such as natural selection, random variation, and mutation. Of course, since there are no transitional forms in the geological table, that's a theory. And the theory rests upon several assumptions which have never been proven, nor can they be proven. In short, macroevolution is, to put it quite simply, the creation myth of the atheist. 
It's the theory about everything, the grand theory that tells us why everything exists. But of course, it really can't do that at all. But still, what of the age of the earth? And what about the fossil record in which we can show with certainty that death happened long before the appearance of Homo sapiens? Indeed, what of life forms that have ceased to exist long before Adam showed up? Is this not evidence that the Genesis account can't be right? See, I hope you stay with me through this series. We're going to see that Christians who read Genesis in a way that it was intended, as a historical narrative, but, but not as a scientific one, we'll see that we have absolutely nothing to fear from science. Indeed, we can read Genesis literally and actually rejoice in every scientific finding about the ancient earth. I think we can do just that. You know, several years ago, I stood at the summit of Mauna Loa on the big island of Hawaii. I had the opportunity to look through a telescope and actually saw a supernova millions of light years away. That meant what I was actually seeing happened millions of years ago. Was I concerned that I couldn't believe the Bible now that I had seen this magnificent sight? Well, no, indeed. I went all the way down that mountain contemplating Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. As we study these 11 chapters, I want to remove the cringe factor and replace it with a sense of wonder. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and this God is also the God who loves our souls well. John, we've launched into an incredible series on the book of Genesis, and I got to wonder, I got to ask you this question, what was your greatest fear entering into this series? Well, that's an insightful question because I actually do have some fears entering into it. Sometimes I think that believers who agree on the basics and on the essentials will sometimes divide out on Genesis on non-essential issues. Um, and so I, I'm concerned that we know the difference between uh, what is uh, what I had called a non-negotiable and, and what are those things in which believers who believe that it's a historic, literal account and who take every word to be exactly as the Word of God, but in fact somehow you know differ in some of their understanding of it, would take issue with each other. And so uh, I, I'm hoping that I still have listeners when we're all done, and that even if you disagree on some of the things that I've said, that you might still love me and know that we worship and love the same God. That's my deepest concern. Well, this has been a great overview of what we can look forward to in our study of Genesis. There is much more to discuss and to learn, and I hope today's message has whet your appetite for more. So be sure to join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues to unpack what he's entitled, The Most Important Questions. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Every home depends on God's supply. Back to the Bible Canada relies upon His supply through the faithfulness of our listeners. Thank you for your gifts that allow us to make new resources to help support you in your walk with Christ, as well as sustain our Bible teaching programs. Your support makes this ministry possible. Your generosity allows us to proclaim God's truth. Our families need it. If you wish to support us in a form of a donation, please visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Or you may consider joining our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and have your contribution to this ministry recur on a monthly basis. 
To find out more about the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and the exclusive benefits you unlock by joining, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.